1: It's a phrase we use to describe the ability to amplify someone's story, to give it voice. For close to three decades here in New York, radio reporter Peter Haskell has been doing just that, giving voice to stories of great community interest. People hit hard by the hurricane are struggling to rebuild, and they blame the contractors that the city sent in. Here's WCBS
0: reporter Peter Haskell. The work on Diane Doyle's home was finally completed in 2018, but her relief was short-lived less than a year later she was forced out again our sprinkler system froze a day after testifying before congress lou alvarez is going for his 69th round of chemo
3: we have to do it because if we don't do it nobody else will.
1: our big story amazon backing out of its deal to build a second headquarters in long island city queens our peter haskell has been hearing from both sides this afternoon
0: the deal was not only going to bring 25,000 jobs to the city It was going to expand and cement New York's position as his serious and growing tech hub. Now that might not happen. Julie Samuels.
1: In the irony of ironies, over the past few years, Peter's voice has been swallowed up by a rare vocal disorder called dysphonia.
0: Spasmodic dysphonia is a condition where the vocal cords don't come together properly, and then it just creates a host of problems with a voice. This week on 880 In Depth, we're giving voice to Peter's story. While it sounds like sometimes I might be about to take my last breath, that is not true. Uh, I feel fortunate that I'm otherwise healthy.
1: This week, we tell the story of a rare medical condition that has ended the broadcast career of one of New York's best-known and most respected journalists.
0: It's hard for me to walk away, but I I know the time is right, and the, the overwhelming feeling I have really is gratitude.
1: Welcome to 880 In Depth. I'm Michael Wallace. Peter Haskell has been a radio fixture on WCBS since 1994. He's covered everything from earthquakes and plane crashes,
0: a couple of witnesses i have spoken to say that it appeared as if the pilot who was trying to bring down the plane,
1: to politics and 9 11.
0: It's like uh, light colored ash. Still billowing up from the location where those twin towers used to be, and when you look
1: at that, Peter's work on the health crisis from 9/11 over these past 21 years has won awards and has given voice to our community's continuing trauma over the September 11th terror attacks.
0: With his verbal jabs and slaps, John Stewart's fury was visceral. Once again, first responders trekked here to D.C. with their walkers, wheelchairs, and oxygen tanks. It is frustrating and it is
1: angering, and to watch politicians use their sacrifice to their own benefit and not respond to their needs is it's infuriating but in recent years peter's voice has suffered some trauma of its own listeners began to notice peter's delivery become labored his words slurring together at times privately peter has been struggling with this issue for years earlier this month with conditions becoming unsustainable Peter announced that he would be stepping down and ending his radio reporting career. Uh, I feel
0: fortunate that I'm otherwise healthy, in good shape, but this is not a a life-threatening condition. It's certainly a career-threatening condition, and that's where I'm at.
1: It is a personal story. It is our story. But we felt there is value in sharing it. People often face challenges in life that we don't hear the backstory to. So this is The Backstory. Peter recently sat down to talk about his condition with our boss, News Director Tim Scheldt.
2: When did you begin to feel like you had a problem that needed to be addressed? So it probably goes back
0: 10 years to 2012, where every now and then I'd have a problem and would think, "That, that doesn't seem right, and then the next day I'd be fine, it would go away. And so it probably took me a year or two to see a doctor. First guy, wasn't sure what it is. Second guy said, Yeah, I think it's this spasmodic dysphonia. And I was going to go to him. And I was talking to a friend of mine. He's like, You, you got to find the best person there is. And there was, at the time, this uh, nationally renowned ENT. So I just called him on the phone. The guy actually called me back. And uh, I said, Well, this doctor's not sure if I have spasmodic dysphonia. He's like, Oh, yeah, you got it. <laughs> Here, here's the guy you need to see. He's the best guy in New York City. And I went to this doctor, and I've been seeing him since.
2: So how did it manifest itself? What, what, what was wrong with you that you felt like you had to um, pay attention to?
0: So at first, I, I'm not even sure. Just I, I couldn't, my, the range, I was losing range in certain ways. I couldn't have my normal inflection. I had to change the inflection. And again, this would come and go. So I was like, I had no idea what was going on, but I had no reason to think it was serious. And then it came to a point where I would do a report, and I'd run out of breath. And so there were times where it might have sounded like I was about to take my final breath, but that was not the case. It was just, I actually saw a pulmonologist. I wasn't sure if it was my lungs, and I was, I was fine there.
2: And your um, specialist that you ultimately went to to begin to deal with this, his name is? Andrew
0: Blitzer. He's a guy who pioneered the treatment that I'm
3: getting now. Maybe still do the 0.1 units because we seem, that seems to be safe here.
2: And in preparing for this uh, podcast, uh, this show, you actually sat down and had a conversation with him about this so we could share in some of your personal... Um, recollection and his personal expertise.
0: What is spasmodic dysphonia?
3: Spasmodic dysphonia is a dystonia of the larynx. Uh, Dystonia is a disorder where there is some interference in the brain. We think mostly in the brainstem processing sensory information and turning it into motor signal causing spasms of muscles, In, in your particular case laryngeal muscles that affect the way you speak. What causes this? Uh, There are some people that have it on a genetic basis. There are some people that have many strokes or car accidents where they have head trauma. Uh, For most people, we call it idiopathic, meaning we don't know. It's thought that maybe there are some cases related to viruses that may have an effect on the central nervous system, but we don't know. Is there a cure? Not at the moment.
2: So I want to talk about treatment. How soon did you begin the treatment, and what did the treatment entail? Were there different courses of treatment, or did you just have, or is there, are there other courses of treatment that you could choose to do? So from what I was
0: told there, first of all, they can't fix this thing. There's no cures, so they treat it. And what they do is they inject Botox. And so Botox, Botox, which they use. So I've got the smoothest <laughs> vocal cords anybody has ever seen. No wrinkles in them. And they inject the Botox through the throat. They put a needle into the throat and then they inject the muscle that controls the vocal cords. And in my case, they do each treatment. They, they alternate from one side to the other. And so the muscle is paralyzed by the Botox. And so one cord basically stays partially closed, and the the problem that I have is that the cords don't meet and make the sounds that I want them to make by forcing one side closed. If the other side is moving, they hopefully rub together.
2: So the way that I understand this is this is a spasm that occurs uh, because of this condition, and this treatment tries to deal with the spasm, tries to eliminate eliminate the spasm. It's not a cure it's managing uh, the manifestation right pretty much yes yeah. tell me about the treatment itself that you ended up starting in what did you say 2014 i think
0: probably 2014 i would go every 3 months or so they use a laryngoscope where you know if you've had it they just put a tube up your nose got a light and a camera on it they come comes down your throat and gives you a video image of vocal cords and and then they take a look at which side is moving which side is not
2: what's that like
0: so the tube is uh you know they give you a little anesthetic it's a little unpleasant not a big deal look, I've done this so many times now. It's like, okay, hey, doc, here, come on, just take the tube up my nose, I'm all good. good and so tell us about this treatment right. then.
3: And when we began, first began using botulinum toxin, uh, there was a, an ophthalmologist, that also curiously enough, at the University of California, San Francisco, who began using botulinum toxin, or thought of the thought of using it in children with, with uh, something called strabismus where their eyes don't focus together well and they would end up needing glasses with prisms and whatever and the ophthalmologists used to operate on these kids trying to correct the muscles and uh, he sometimes so that worked for a lot of kids but sometimes it just wasn't enough and he thought if there was something he could inject to just give a tiny little bit more weakness he could get the eyes to focus together and oh, after using lots of different things uh, he used botulinum toxin uh, and, and by weakening the muscles first in monkey and then be in a limited clinical trial in children uh, done under FDA guidance uh, he found that it was very successful so then he began looking at other things that ophthalmologists treat and one of them was blepharospasm where the eyes close. And they can't open easily, and um, so by weakening those muscles, you could correct the, the blepharospasm, which is a dystonia of the eyelids. And after that, the FDA, when that was so successful, the FDA came to a number of movement disorders neurologists, uh, Mark Halit at the NIH, Stanford, Columbia, who who I worked with and Joe Jankovic in, at Baylor in Houston uh, and they challenged these doctors to say you take care of a lot of dystonia, could this be used for other dystonians? So in 1984 we had a man um, who had been getting Botox for eyelid, uh, for blood for spasm, eyelid closure and his voice started to become uh, affected. And so we injected him as the first person in, in the world, actually, uh, to be treated with botulinum toxin for dystonia of the larynx. Uh, and then after that, we began using it for a lot of other dystonias as well. But uh, in we had a few people that have what you have, the abductor form or the opening form. And in the p- around 19... I'm thinking around 1986 we injected the first abductor or opening and it was very difficult because we weren't sure exactly how to best approach it and uh, so the first injection took us about an hour (laughs) an hour to do trying to trying to isolate where the needle was and were we in the right place and would it diffuse to something else that we didn't want uh, uh, but after that uh, it's, it's proved to be very successful, used judiciously, and um, so we've injected, it, it's a less common form, it's only about probably one in ten of the laryngeal dystonias are abductor form, and I think we've treated probably around 180 or 190 since that time.
2: What does he see? You probably can see it on a screen as well. What did you see in those So images?
0: He, right. So he takes the video, then he'll play back the video, and it will explain to me each time. Every time I go, it's like, okay, I see movement on one side. We're going to inject this side. Here's the tricky part. If you paralyze one side, it, it stays open. If both sides are paralyzed, it stays closed. You can't breathe. So it's you, you can't get too large a dose. And so... Fortunately, the doctor is very conservative with this. I'm very conservative. I want to speak. It's what I do for a living. But I don't want to end up in the hospital with a trach tube. And so that's the alternative. And so it's very tricky. How large a dose do you give? And so, you know, I'll discuss with the doctor. Sometimes I'll say, look, I was just here six weeks ago. If you can't do anything, we'll wait another few weeks. And that that has happened a few times. And
2: so this started in 2014, and you had how frequently did you begin to have this treatment?
0: So I started having it probably every three months or so. Sometimes it was give or take. Uh, But in the past year or two, it's become more like every two months just because I was trying to keep my voice at a level and a quality that I could continue to work.
2: Tell me a little bit about the procedure itself that you would go through, and by our count, we, we think that since 2014 you might have gone through 40 or 50 of these?
0: Could be, yep.
3: This will give you a little anesthetic. And this may make you cough.
0: Look, they, they, they stick a needle into your throat, between the the below the adam's apple maybe a little bit below the adam's apple and there's kind of a soft cartilage spot there and they put a little um anesthetic in there and then the doctor gets the botox puts it in needle he puts two pads on my neck which are similar what you would get on an ekg and the way i understand it and i can't say this is completely accurate there's a wire connected to the needle which will indicate if he's hearing air or solid, he's trying to find a spot in the cartilage to stick the needle through the cartilage into the muscle to paralyze. it. So, look, having somebody stick a needle in your throat is unpleasant. I'm not going to tell you it's painful. It's not like, oh, my God, he's killing me. So it's like, you know, 20 seconds of unpleasant, then it's done, and I'm like, okay, thank you, <laughs> and then it's over.
2: Do you, do you get a sense... Uh, the number of people that have to deal with this uh, in society today? So according to the people
0: with the National Spasmodic Dysphonia Association, there are 50,000 people in North America who have been diagnosed with this. So it's it's relatively rare. It's very rare, actually. And because of that, there's not a lot of research on it because they don't put money toward a condition, I'm guessing, A, that's not life-threatening, and B, that has such a small
2: constituency. You and I have talked about this before. There are other people in our profession, broadcasters, news people, and we won't name them, but people who do struggle with health conditions that have affected their their voice. If their voice is part of who they are uh, in their daily jobs for news broadcasting, um, and and you've had contact with a number of them and, and who are in similar positions, maybe not exactly the same medical condition.
0: Right, so I've I've been in touch with the people who have the same condition, spasmodic dysphonia, and other people, radio or TV types, who have vocal cord problems. And I, I think one thing to add is that the condition is exacerbated by stress. So if you're on the radio or on the TV, you can imagine there's a certain amount of stress that goes with Can I get my job done today? What is it going to take to get my job done today? And, you know, some days it was a real struggle. The flip side of that is I'm really stubborn. So I'm going to keep doing it until it's as good as it's going to be. Now, when it's finished, you know, there are days I'm like, oh, man, that was not pretty, but it was done. And there are other days I'm just going to keep doing it, I'm going to keep doing it, I'm going to keep doing it. i was like, okay, I'm good. And, um, you know, that's been hard to deal with. It's been a challenge. I mean, you know, as long as I've been doing this job, I, from the beginning, as I was taught, you know, you read your copy f- before you record it or you go live. And so I would record, I would read this to myself and in my head, it's like strings and 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 horns and woodwinds and it sounds like a symphony and then I'd hear it out loud and it's like okay it's like you know nuts and bolts in a tin can so um, but I'm stubborn and so I'm like I'm just I'm gonna I'm gonna plug and in my own mind my whole career is not because I'm more talented than anybody I'm not smarter than anybody that's for sure but I work hard and so my mentality from the day I started in this profession was to work hard. And so every day, it's been harder to do, but I've just been plugging and plugging and plugging and plugging.
2: And a topic of conversation that you and I have had over the course of our you know, long friendship, certainly the, the, the last 20 years is, have you ever given any thought to whether 9-11 played a role in any of this? You and I were both down uh, in that area for significant periods of time uh, in the early days, uh, in the days, weeks, months after fires were burning. You have done more reporting on 9-11 health impacts than anybody. I consider you an expert in this area. Have you ever considered that that, that it could have contributed to your issues?
0: So I've asked about that, and I think Part of the problem is this condition is so rare, so even if they get one or two, and I think what I was told, they've got a couple, but the numbers are so small, it's really hard for them to say there's a connection, there's not.
2: And there really is no explanation as to how one gets it, as the doctor explained prior, he said it could have come from a an accident, not in your case, but it, it, there are a lot of explanations, but none for you, right?
0: I think the simplest way that I've heard it is there's no explanation. You know, why do people get any kind of a host of conditions that are not brought on by environmental factors or health risks or or behavioral risks? Uh people get all kinds of conditions
2: so we're doing this conversation uh as a service to let people know about this, but also to help explain your personal situation and um I think there's value in all of all of that. From a health point of view, from a vocal point of view, what do you do now? Do you continue those treatments now that you're going to stop, pull back from broadcasting? Are you still going to get the needle in your Adam's apple uh, or in, that, you know, in the muscle accompanying that area of your vocal cords? Is that a treatment that you'll continue? Do you worry about more debilitating nature of being able to communicate with your wife and kids and family?
0: Yeah, I mean I'm certainly worried about it I think my intent is to continue getting the injections but probably not as frequently so if I'm not going to be on the radio every day I can have a decline a little bit more and that does I think two things to me one is um, I'm not gonna you know run out of breath if I'm running up the steps which sometimes like after I get a shot and if I go up steps, I feel it because the the airway is so narrowed. And doc, the doctor has told me that even when I'm coming in before the shot, um, sometimes about like 30% of what a normal airway would be. After the injection, it gets smaller. And so I think that allows me that. And then when I go, I can get a larger dose, which I'm not sure what the difference is, but... I just think I'll go, but probably less frequently.
2: Anything I didn't ask you that we wanted to bring to this conversation?
0: You know, I think there are all kinds of vocal disorders out there. This is one of them. Many of them are very rare. I've been in touch with the folks at the national organization, and so I'll just plug their website, which is dysphonia.org. It's D Y S. -S 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 P-H-O-N-I-A dysphonia.org and it's got information on spasmodic dysphonia which is what I have and a host of other uh, vocal conditions And, and the last thing I would say is this is not how I expected my career would end and but I feel very fortunate A, that I've had so much fun doing what I've been doing for 30 five plus years and feel very fortunate. And the other thing is this this is not the end. You know, I'm I'm not I don't have this a serious health condition, this is not gonna kill me. And so I'll go on. To do what? I don't know. But it's 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 a it's a speed bump. Yeah. And yeah. I think anybody who's got a vocal condition, plenty of people speak for a living. If you're a lawyer or a teacher, you know, or a singer, clearly I can't sing anymore. Never could. But I was just going to say. But I'm
3: say,
2: <laughs> <laughs> I'm stubborn. I won't let you sing. Uh, no, I mean, uh, um, you know, this is something that we've personally lived with ourselves, uh, you know, for many years and trying to support you here. Uh, and as someone who has... Live through a number of chapters professionally in my life i I know that this is not this is just the end of a chapter and there are exciting chapters I know people say that, but yeah. I actually do believe that for you just given who you are and what you do and your talents and and your credibility your name your reputation, the next chapter um, is pretty exciting as far as I'm concerned so thank and, you
0: and and at the risk of uh, bursting into tears i mean i can't thank you enough for all the support that you've given me in being in my corner in guiding me and trying to figure out a way that i can continue to do something that i love as much as i do so thank you wow
2: we're we're lifelong friends my friend
0: we are indeed
1: we wish peter all the best As you may know, Peter Haskell and Tim Scheld are the executive producers of this podcast, 880 In-Depth. If you know someone struggling with vocal issues, we invite you to share this story. You can find all of our 880 In-Depth shows under the podcast tab at wcbs880.com, as well as on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Michael Wallace. Thank you for listening.